Hi, this is Ann Hillman with Alaska Public Media's Solutions Desk. For this special supplement, Natasha Gamash tells a longer version about her path to recovery through a 12-step program. My name is uh, Natasha, and I'm a grateful recovering addict and alcoholic. How long have you been recovering? <sighs> Seven and a half years. That's a long time. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is a really long time. Well, my story begins, uh, you know, I was born, uh, like we all were, um, I was born to an alcoholic father and a drug addict mother who were teenagers. Both of them came from uh, very traumatizing homes. Kind of the things that happened to them when they were growing up happened to me. And so um, from the time I was really little, I never really had the chance to be a kid. I was a caretaker, took care of my parents, um, took care of my siblings because I was the oldest. You know, between caretaking and then going through these different kinds of abuses, it just really took its toll on me. You know, things in that kind of environment, they usually only ever get worse, and they did. And as I got worse, you know, um, I got worse. So what started out as kind of like a, a little neurotic kid who was taking care of siblings, you know, cooking meals, doing all the laundry, cleaning, um, taking care of parents when they were sick because of, you know, drinking or drug use. You know, now I've got uh, a lot of anxiety. I don't like going out in public. Um, I had an incredibly difficult time making friends. You know, I had nightmares, um, just a whole lot of things, you know. And um, when I was 11, I was diagnosed with ulcers for the first time, uh, stress-related ulcers. And it was through a therapist that my doctor recommended that I see that I saw this therapist. That was my first therapist. And we talked about my dad, and he mentioned my dad's drinking. And they asked, how much did he drink? And I told them, and they said, oh, so your dad's alcoholic. And I said, what's that? And they explained to me what an alcoholic was. And so I get done with my therapy, and I go home, and I'm walking up the front steps of my grandma's home, and I promptly walk up to my dad and tell him, you're an alcoholic. You can't tell me what to do. Wow, how did that go over? <laughs> badly. <laughs> Very badly. Um but, you know, it planted a seed for my dad. And uh, things escalated very badly to where, you know, there was a lot of police involvement and restraining orders because of the relationship my mom and dad had. And so we ended up moving to Anchorage. And uh, while we were here, November uh, of the year we moved up here. Where'd you move from? Washington. We moved up here in that November. I got drunk for the first time with my mom's friends. And um, my first drink, my first drunk was my first blackout. It was also the first time that I smoked pot. And I remember being really sick the next day. Don't remember much else. But I remember thinking afterwards, like, man, I want to feel that way all the time. 
you know, all those stresses that I had, the the pressure, the anxiety, the living in this incredible fear, you know, because at this point we're running for our lives kind of deal. Um, you know, it was just so much and we didn't have a support system. I didn't, I didn't have coping skills. I didn't know what those were. Um, you know, the only family we had were just as sick as I was. So that wasn't helpful. So I started drinking regularly. I started smoking pot regularly. Um, you know, I remember us flying back to Washington when, uh, when my mom and dad decided to get back together. It was Valentine's Day and, um, let's see, it was 12. So it was Valentine's Day of 93. I was drunk and high on that plane. I don't know how nobody noticed. Nobody said anything. Nobody at all. Once my mom and dad got back together, I knew I couldn't drink because I had to be aware of what was going on, which made things worse for me. And so ultimately, you know, my mom and dad kept getting worse. They split up again. We moved to Nome. And from there, my drinking just took off. My drinking and my drug use, you know, um, and at, at one point, you know, then I was drinking with my mom. I was smoking pot with my mom. Um, I was young. Who was looking after the little ones at that time? I was. I was their primary caretaker until my dad took custody of them again. Um, yeah, there was nobody. And were you still seeing therapists too? I wasn't. It wasn't until I had a suicide attempt at 13 that my mom told me I either had to go to therapy or I was going to get arrested for attempted murder. <laughs> and I believed her because, you know, I had tried to kill myself. And so she said, well, that's the law. They'll have to arrest you. And I thought, well, I'm, I don't want to go to jail. I've heard about what they do to people in there. So I started therapy. And I mean, it was, it was helpful to a degree. I had somebody to talk to, um, somebody to kind of bounce things off of, somebody to kind of introduce a semblance of normalcy. But you can't treat trauma when you're living in trauma. It just doesn't work. And that's exactly what was happening. You know, this person was trying to help someone who's still living in an environment where they're being physically abused, sexually abused, emotionally abused, you know, going through religious abuse, educational abuse, all of these different levels of abuse. Until I was out of that situation, I'm not going to do a whole lot. Um, you know, and so at that point, I think I was diagnosed with depression and something like adjustment disorder. So I, I went to therapy off and on for many years, um, you know, and during this time, my life get, kept getting progressively worse, like my parents did, right? You know, I didn't have a solution. And so it wasn't until I was uh, 18 and got pregnant and had to try being sober that I was like, wow, this is awful. And I was like partially insane, maybe fully. Three quarters. I don't know who's counting. <laughs> what does that mean? You were partially insane. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, alcohol and, uh, and drugs made life bearable. 
it made the insanity that was happening around me bearable. Um, you know, some people like to be wide, wide awake and flying high at 100 million miles an hour. And some people just want oblivion. They want that blackout. They want to be passed out. And that was me. I needed an escape from my really awful reality. And now, I'm, you know, when I was pregnant and, um, you know, I'm still in that situation, but now I don't have a solution. It'll make you go crazy. So what did yeah. you do? Oh, man. I, um, I stayed crazy. And, uh, you know, within two weeks of me giving birth to my first kid, I was drinking and using again. And, uh, you know, everybody else around me, that's how they lived. That's how they parented. That's how my parents did it. I knew it wasn't normal, but I didn't know any other way to live outside of the normal that I knew. So that's what I did. I knew I wanted to be different. I always said when I was a kid, I'm never going to turn out like my parents. I'm never going to be a drunk like my dad, or I'm never going to be this. Yeah, no. All those things that I said I was never going to be like my parents, I became because I didn't I didn't know anything else. So I went through uh, five kids doing that where I had one and, uh, you know, I'd drink and use and then I'd get pregnant and I'd go even more crazy. And, you know, by this time I'd had uh, several sexual assaults that happened in my adult life. And those really exacerbated all of the trauma that I went through as a kid. And so now, you know, at this point, I'm in my 20s, my early 20s, and um, I have major depression. You know, they diagnosed me with PTSD and OCD and generalized anxiety disorder and all of these different things. And so I, you know, I get back into therapy and I'm going to therapy and I keep having kids and, and then not having kids and drinking or using, um, trying periods of sobriety. I've had periods of sobriety, sometimes year, more than a year of sobriety, but I was crazy, so incredibly crazy, you know, and uh, if I went to the, the hospital, they would try to give me pills. Oh, here's some Paxil, here's some, you know, Wellbutrin, here's some Zoloft, here's some Prozac, here's some whatever. None of it helped. None of it helped. Were you, I mean, were you following, I guess, doctor's orders and taking things regularly and it still just wasn't helping? Yeah. Uh, Well, some of it to the best of my ability. Like I remember taking Paxil and just, I looked the sickest I ever looked in my whole life. And after being on it for two weeks, my mom was like, you cannot take this anymore because it literally made me so sick. You know, and so it's things like that where I can see, yeah, people that have mental illness when they say they don't like taking their meds. I mean, it's it's not always just an excuse, you know. Did it they was, switch you to another one? Did you try something else? No. You know, my family was very leery about psychiatric care because of what some other family members had gone through in the, must have been 60s and 70s. You know, at a time when mental health care is very different from what it is today. And so so my mom was like, you know, oh, those people are quacks. You're fine. You don't need this. And so I, I didn't get anything else as a kid. But as an adult, I started taking that medication again. And, 
you know, the Wellbutrin wasn't working, so they wanted to put me on Paxil, and I told them, no, it made me sick. They gave it to me anyway, and I'm like, well, I'm, my mom must have been right. You know, they didn't listen. And then uh, I got pregnant again, and they gave me Zoloft. And that seemed to help a little bit, a little, not a lot, but, you know, a little. And I was depressed. I was suicidal. I ended up in the hospital again and, you know, just all of this stuff. And I remember thinking, like, what's wrong with me? You know, there's something, something's wrong with me. And I can't fix it. I can't, I don't know what it is. Nobody will tell me what it is. But there is something so deeply wrong with me that I just, you know, I was demoralized. Um... I was very suicidal, very isolated, very lonely. You know, and I stayed that way for several years until my I met my ex-husband. And, um, you know, I'm still trying to do therapy. I'm in and out of therapy. Nothing's working. I'm getting worse. I'm always getting worse. I couldn't figure out why I'm doing all this stuff. You know, I'm going to these doctor's appointments. I'm telling them this stuff. You know, it freaks me out to have to tell them I'm having panic attacks, but I don't know their panic attacks afterward. And, um, you know, none of my therapists ever taught me about compartmentalization, um, you know, or how to properly close a therapy session. And so I'm leaving in the middle of telling a story that's got me triggered. And, you know, then I would leave. And it's like, I need something to fix me. And these medications aren't fixing me. And these therapists aren't fixing me. And nothing's fixing me. So I would drink. And if I wasn't drinking, I was using pills. And if I wasn't using pills, it was, you know, it was something else. But I, I needed something to take away the pain. Once I met my ex-husband, that just took off. What do you mean? It was, a, it was an abusive relationship. But it didn't, to me, it didn't look abusive because he didn't hit me. But there were other things happening. And, um... You know, like he wouldn't punch me, but he would punch the wall right next to where my head was or something like that, you know, Um, that it just, I was right back in the environment that I grew up in. And so instead of, you know, being a single parent with three little kids, yeah, I'm traumatized. Yeah, I'm trying to self-medicate, but I wasn't in any new trauma Now I'm right back in that old trauma. And uh, so I got back into therapy because I started getting sicker. And, uh, you know, I'm telling the therapists what are going on. And, you know, there was nothing anybody could do. Uh, They didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to help me. And, you know, um, now my, my diagnoses are increasing. The year before I got sober, I had a... um, I had a neuropsych done, and uh, you know this neuropsych. I had something like ten psychiatric diagnoses. You know, major depressive disorder, um, borderline personality disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, agoraphobia, um, obsessive compulsive, like all of these different things. I was a non-functioning adult. I really was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I was, I was agoraphobic because I kept getting worse. I couldn't stand to be around people. I lived in an incredible amount of fear, so much fear. Um, I had to be sedated to leave my home. 
how are you looking after your kids through all of this? Badly. You know, because at this point I couldn't drink, but I was using and I was taking pills. And uh, a lot of the pills that they give you when, you know, you're on psychiatric medication, um, you know, if you're on a sedative, what is it going to do? It's going to sedate you. You know, a lot of antipsychotics, they have the same kind of effect, or at least for me they did, where, you know, I looked like I was drunk. I wasn't drunk, but I, for all intents and purposes, I couldn't walk straight. I'd walk into walls. And so, you know, most of the care fell to their, to their dad, their stepdad. And, uh, you know, I thought he was a good person, but no, you know, there was things happening to my kids that I didn't know about. And, uh, you know, it was the same kinds of things that was happening to them was happening to me. And none of us really knew what to do and nobody knew how to help us. And, uh, you know, so then I, I get involved with ACMHS. What's that? It's uh, Anchorage Community Mental Health Services. And, you know, I'm going to be forever grateful to that place because... You know, I went there, and for the first time, I could hear what somebody was saying. I didn't understand it, but, like, I remember telling one of my therapists what was going on, and she said, well, you know, what, what boundaries did you set? And I said, what? What is a boundary? Like, I don't know what that means. And she had to explain it to me. And that was the first time it dawned on me that there might be a way that people are living that I don't know about. And it was a good thing and a bad thing because what it, what it did is, one, it gave me hope that, oh, maybe there's a different way to live. But then that double-edged sword was coupled with, well, how come I'm not living it? How come I wasn't raised in it? How come I didn't know about it? How come my relationships don't have it? So I thought, I must not be good enough. If I was worth having it, I would have had it. Um, I would have been born with it. It would have been given to me. It would, have, it would have happened somehow, which today I know is not right thinking, you know, um, but I didn't know that. And so I really started engaging in services at ACMHS. And little by slowly, I could hear something that they were saying. It might not have been very big, but like, but what next, did you hear? Um, like they would say something like, you know, next time you get that upset, I want you to try to breathe. Um, like I was having panic attacks, and I didn't know what they were. I had no idea how to get through. And panic attacks—I mean, if you've never had one, it's not a heart attack, but you're pretty sure you're dying like it's a heart attack. You know, you're having chest pains, your heart is racing, and all you have is this impending sense of doom. Like, you are just certain you are dying. And, um, but then you don't die. It's the weirdest thing. And so, one of my therapists said, you know, next time that happens, I just want you to try to breathe. And I thought, well, there's, there's no way that's going to help me. You know what? This lady's a quack. I tried it. It helped. It didn't make it disappear entirely, but it helped. So I kept going back. And, you know, around the same time, I'm, I'm talking to my dad, 
and my dad's in recovery. He's in a 12-step program. You know, over the years, my dad kept telling me, you know, oh, there's a solution for that. Oh, you got this problem. There's a solution for that. And I never wanted to hear it. You know, my dad kept trying to take me to meetings when I was a kid, and I wanted no part of that. And as an adult, I felt like he was trying to push it on me. And I was like, I just don't, you know, I'm not a drunk like you, you know. So I really didn't think I had a drinking problem. I really didn't think I had a using problem. I thought I had a life problem. If you had my life, you would drink the way I drink. And if you weren't drinking, you would use pills the way I used pills. Or you would smoke pot the way I smoke pot. Or you would eat the way I ate. Or whatever. It didn't matter what it was. Um, you would need an escape from your reality. And that's really what I thought I was doing. But... Um, you know, my life kept getting progressively worse. My mental illness kept getting progressively worse. Nothing I was doing was, was making any real difference. And so now I'm isolated. I have very few friends. The friends I have are really just as sick as me. Um, I can't get a job. Now I'm on disability. You know, I have kids that are incredibly, like, profoundly affected by the trauma they're going through. And my ex got arrested for assaulting one of my children. And a couple months later, ended up going into rehab. And I realized while he was gone, I have no idea how to take care of my kids. Like, I had no parenting skills. I didn't, I didn't know how to be a parent. That scared me. You know, I'm somebody who's already terrified of life. Now I'm terrified of five little kids, you know. And um, so I systematically gave each one of them away because I thought they deserved better. They needed something better. They needed help. They needed better caregivers. Whatever it was for that kid, I thought, they just need better than me. And at the end of that, you know, I'm using that whole time and... Uh, My ex calls me from rehab and says, I'm leaving you. I've met someone. And that was kind of the tipping point for me. I started drinking and using just with complete abandon. I just, I, I just decided like, you know, I, I can't, I can't handle life anymore. I just can't do one more day of this. You know, and I know there's something wrong with me and I can't fix it and nobody can fix it. And I'm terrified of everything. I'm having panic attacks. I'm having flashbacks. You know, I'm suicidal, all of these different things. And I, I just, I just didn't know what to, what else to do. So I'm hanging out with people that are really, you know, they're not good people. I'm doing things that aren't good for me. And, um... I remember going to meetings. I was going to uh, Al-Anon meetings, actually, because I knew I didn't have a problem. But I figured everybody else around me had a problem, right? And I was going to Al-Anon, and I wasn't sober. The lady that was working with me in that meeting said, I want you to start going to the program for alcoholics. And I was like, no way. I can't do it. And I, I firmly believe this lady knew me better than I knew myself then. So I went to a meeting and I started going to a lot of meetings and I wasn't hearing anything. And then one day I heard a lady share her story at a speaker meeting. 
and she had this amazing ability to talk about what her life was like on a really real level. I don't know. Her story was my story. And I heard it for the first time, like that message of there's hope. And I thought, well, this is not good because she's saying she's alcoholic, but I am clearly not alcoholic, but her story is my story. So I called my dad right afterward and I said, hey, dad. And he said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm at a speaker meeting. And he goes, that's great. What'd you hear? And I said, well, I heard this lady share her story. And I think her story was my story. And you could just hear my dad go, oh, thank God. <laughs> and it was like, like, what? And he goes, no, you're finally getting it. And I said, I don't know. I said, I, am I alcoholic? And he was like, you think? I was like, oh, and then you could hear my stepmom in the background. And she's like, Jay, who's on the phone? And he's like, it's Natasha. She thinks she's alcoholic. And you could hear my stepmom just yell, oh, thank God. <laughs> I remember thinking, like, maybe that's what's wrong with me. And then I think for a long time it just, I tried to convince myself I'm not alcoholic. It's the people around me. You know, if you had my life, you went through what I went through, you would be profoundly impacted. You would need a drink every bit as much as I need a drink. You know, that was a turning point for me of recognizing myself in that woman's story. And so I asked my dad, I said, what do I do? And he's like, go to meetings, get honest. And I thought, well, it can't be that easy. I mean, there's got to be more to it than that. And by this time, I mean, I'm insane. I'm insane. You know, I had taken a kid out to a treatment center and abandoned her with her dad, who was in that treatment center when she was younger than 10. You know, I mean, along with the depression and along with the, the anxiety and the fear, I had a lot of rage. So much rage. And my kids saw all of that. And so, you know, at this point, I've got kid in OCS custody, and I've got a kid in the hospital, and I've got a kid here. And, you know, I'm, I'm swearing at judges and swearing at OCS, and I'm just showing up all kinds of bad. And, uh, you know, eventually what happened was is... Uh, I knew my son was going to be coming home. He needed to go into a, a mental health program that would help him to deal with his trauma. And so he was coming home from that. And uh, I remember thinking, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to take care of this kid. So I thought, well, I just I need to be sober to go get him. And then I realized wait, I'm not sober now. So I had to call my grandma and ask my grandma, would you please drive me to go get my son? And so as we're driving up there, you know, I'm sick. I don't feel good. I look awful. I probably really smelled awful. Um, 
I remember shaking, just really being sick on the way up there. And so we drove up to Fairbanks and we picked him up and then we drove back. That was the first time it occurred to me, I need help to stay sober. And so I went to a 12-step meeting. And I remember getting there. I probably looked homeless. I don't know that I brushed my hair. I am fairly certain I didn't brush my teeth. I probably hadn't in a long time. I dressed in ratty clothes because that's all I had in this big coat that, you know, it, it just just was not something that you would think someone my age would wear in these big clunky winter boots. And um, I remember walking into the meeting and sitting down for the first time and saying, hi, my name's, you know, da-da-da, and I think I'm alcoholic. And I cried. And I cried because... I didn't want to be alcoholic. And I didn't know if there was any way to fix me, but I knew everything I had tried up until that point, it wasn't working. I mean, even right before then, I was so suicidal that I was trying to go to Providence and I told them, you know, I, I want to die. I need help. And they, like, I'd been there so many times, they wouldn't take me again. I just remember thinking, like, you know, this is the last place I have to go. There's nowhere else for someone like me to go. I've burned all my bridges, you know. Um, I don't have any family. I don't have any friends. You know, I have my therapist, and I'm not getting any better. And I'm taking medication, and I'm not getting any better. And, you know, I'm doing all these therapies, and I'm not getting any better. And I'm suicidal, and my life is crazy, and my kids are crazy, and my ex is crazy, and I'm in a divorce, and, and I have OCS in my life. And, I mean, it was just like it was this horrible sense of impending doom. But I knew my dad had gotten sober in that program, and I thought, well, I'll try it. And I did. Um, you know, at first it was, it's hard to, it's hard to tell someone who doesn't want to hear anything, you know, uh, something that can help them. And so, you know, I could hear little bits of what people said. You know, it was first it was like, go to meetings and don't drink between meetings and you know, at this point, I'm so sick because I didn't go. I didn't get to go to detox. I didn't get to go to rehab. I didn't get any of that. I had to do this on my own. So I was going to uh, three different twelve-step programs. Yeah, uh, every week I was doing five to seven meetings a day in three different programs. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to meetings, and uh, you know, don't drink between meetings. And then somebody said. You know, uh, get a sponsor and call them. And so I tried finding a sponsor, and I was so sick I couldn't find a woman to sponsor me. I was turned down by more than a dozen women. Nobody would sponsor me. I finally had to ask a man to work the steps with me. And uh, you know, I'll be I'll be forever grateful to that man. He was an incredible man. He still is, but he did what nobody else is willing to do. You know, he outlined a program of 12-step recovery for me that I could hear. And he did it in a loving way. And, um, you know, he said, you want the relief? You got to work the steps. This is what we do. So we got a big book. And, uh, you know, he had me read a certain number of pages. And then uh, and he was like, okay, we're going to do steps one, two, and three. 
You know, step one is admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I could always admit my life was unmanageable, but it was really hard to say. I'm powerless over alcohol, but I did it. And then step two was came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And, and he put it really easy to me. He's like, you know, you don't have to believe it. You just have to be willing just be willing to believe that it's possible. Yeah. So I said, okay, sure. If it'll make me better, I'm willing to believe it. And then he said, you know, step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And uh, he's like, you know, are you willing? And I was like, I'm willing to do anything at this point. And I really had no idea what I was doing, but I just did what he said. And so uh, I did it. Then we did a fourth step. So you write down all the people you have a resentment against. Write down all the bad things you've done, all the bad things other people have done, whatever. And you write it down. You do your fifth step with your sponsor, right? Usually. So I took my fifth step to this man. And up until this point, you know, I'm still raging. I'm still depressive. Um, you know, I still, I definitely have those borderline personality traits where my moods are all over the place. You know, they're just crazy erratic. I'm having super big emotions and, uh, you know, I, I can't communicate with OCS. I can't communicate with the courts. I can barely talk to my attorney. I'm still seeing the cops all the God dang time. So we do my fifth step. It was the first time that somebody ever sat me down and I got to tell them what had happened in my life and they gave me a solution. You know, I told them about what happened with my mom and the things that I went through with her. And he was the first person to ever say to me, happy, healthy people don't try to kill their kids. Your mom was a sick person. And as bad as it was, she was doing the best that she could. And it has nothing to do with you. It's not a reflection of you. It's not a reflection of how much or how little she loves you. She's a sick person. And that was the first time that I was like, wow. My eyes were completely open. And... Once your eyes are open to something, it's not like you can close them again, you know. Um, it's like trying to unlive labor. It just doesn't happen, you know. You've experienced it. There's no going back. So we did that for 16 pages worth of people. I told them what happened. And they reframed it for me. And uh, it gave me a new perception it gave me a healthier perspective on how to look at what had happened in my life and how I had reacted as a result. I can tell you that after taking that fifth step and working with that sponsor, four months later, I walked into a meeting with OCS and OCS was like, who is this lady? And I'm like, I mean, it's me. I'm I'm my daughter's mother and they were like Natasha and I was like yeah that's me and they did not recognize me 
They didn't recognize me at all. Um, you know, where once I was not a functioning adult. I was rageful. I was depressive. I was anxious. I had all of these different things, you know, um, going on. I didn't have it. Hardly any of it. I had anxiety. I was going to go see OCS, but... But a, a lot of what I had carried with me for so long was gone, and it physically changed my appearance. Yeah, I looked happier. I looked more at peace. I had, I had a solution. And, uh, you know, they asked me what happened, and I told them, well, I, I got sober. And they said, we didn't know you had a drinking problem. I said, I didn't know it either. You know, <laughs> it makes two of us. So where are you at now, seven years down the line? Well, two and a half years ago, I found out that my children were being victimized by my ex-husband. And, um, and that destroyed my life. It shook everything that I knew to its very core. One thing I didn't have at that time was a good relationship with a higher power. And all of the recovery that I had made, like I really get in the rooms of 12-step programs, we talk about like, you know, if you're alcoholic, you've proven over and over, you clearly can't keep you sober, right? Like if you could, you would have done it. Nobody wants to grow up and be an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever. So, like, you need a God of your understanding to keep you sober because you can't do it. My faith was already really, like, precarious, but it was decimated. And through a couple of good friends um, that made some really good suggestions, I ended up going to a, a church thing of all things at a, a change point. It was called Redemption Groups. And it was a lot like going through the 12 steps. Um, you go in, you tell them where you're at, you share your story. And I was so scared getting ready to share my story. I was literally sick all day in the bathroom. And I finally, I shared my story with these ladies. They were just incredible. And I thought for sure if they knew me, they would throw me away. And I shared stuff with them that I have never shared with another living soul, not even a sponsor. They didn't throw me away. They said they loved me. They said they cared about me. They, they didn't know me and they were saying they loved me. They said I was so brave and thank you so much for being here. And... um. I couldn't believe it. I, I mean, I told them some things that it's like, it's, it, there's this man that is a speaker that he talks about how he knew he was so dirty. He was dirty where soap don't reach. And that's how dirty I felt about these little things that I was holding on to. I was so dirty. I was dirty where soap don't reach. And I really thought if they knew me, they would throw me away and they didn't. So I went through the rest of the process with them and I ended up finding a God of my understanding, you know, which for me is Jesus Christ. That changed things for me. 
Um, there's another man that I really love that talks about uh, whether or not there is a God, it sure stinking helps to believe in one. And I believe that, you know? Um, and so when I finally made my peace with God and I knew that whatever had happened, it wasn't my fault. There's nothing I could have done to change it. God loved me so much anyway that he kept carrying me through all of that. It changed everything, changed me. Uh, you know, six and a half years sober and I was changed. And so now I have a solution and that solution, you know, in the big book, they talk about being rocketed into the fourth dimension of which we could not even dream. That was me, you know, because I had been working and working and working, but I wasn't surrendering. I didn't understand how to let it go. I didn't understand how to give it up and give it to God. You know, and I, I tell people today, whether or not there is a God, it really helps to believe in one. Because I tried therapy, and I'm not saying therapy is bad. It's not. But I never got better. I tried groups, all kinds of groups. You name it, I've done it. I've done it over and over. It never helped. I've done medication, psychiatry, yoga, self-help books, you know, um, I've tried drugs, alcohol, pills, sex, not sex, um, the whole, everything. I tried every imaginable remedy to help fix what was wrong in between my ears. And I could never find anything. I just kept getting progressively worse. When I come to this 12-step program, and they say, you can trade in your crappy life and get a brand new one. I thought they were lying. And where once uh, I had 10 psychiatric diagnoses, today I have one. Where once I was on six regular medications plus, you know, as needed medications, today I'm on none. Where once I couldn't interact with adults in my life without getting 86 from Fred Myers or pharmacies or treatment programs I wasn't a part of or getting into trouble for trying to fight people on the side of the road after they cut me off. Today, I don't live that way. Where once I wasn't employable, today I'm employable. Um, where once I never thought I would be smart enough to go to college, you know, today I finished my first semester of college with straight A's and I really get that was not me. This is a whole program of people that taught me one day at a time how to live clean and sober successfully. And it worked. Do you think if you had just been with a 12-step program, you would have gotten here? Did you need the additional? I did. When I look back on it now, I guess what I can see is that going through the therapy, I was so sick that I wouldn't have been able to hear what they were saying in the rooms. I really felt like the therapy helped prepare me to hear what they were saying in the rooms. And, you know, now that I'm seven and a half years sober, I still go to therapy because I really got there are things... There are things that happened to me that the 12-step 
program itself, not that the 12 steps can't address it, but the people in it aren't qualified to walk you through these things. So I see a trauma therapist and that has been tremendously helpful because what I needed and I never found was someone who really understood trauma and how to interact with a trauma patient that wasn't re-traumatizing them. And not only wasn't re-traumatizing, but also helped them to deal with their trauma in an effective way. So I'm not knocking therapy. I think I needed both, but at least for me, just for me, I don't know about other people, therapy was not the solution. It never helped me to recover. It was the 12 steps. It was a group of people, you know, a fellowship of a 12-step program that I attribute and a God of my understanding. Um, you know, I absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt today that there is a God working in my life. And that God does for me what I can't do for myself every day. And, you know, it's finding that God, 12 steps, sponsorship, being of service. I get to have an incredible life today. It's not perfect. By any stretch, it is not perfect, but it's good. That was Natasha Gamash talking about her road to recovery. Thank you for listening to her story.